You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. Father, we just take a moment to quiet our hearts this morning before we look into your word. And Lord, there is this morning, there is strong meat in your word that can be hard to digest. Lord, we open our hearts, we open our ears to hear what you have to say to us, Lord. To hear your word, the only word, Lord, that's guaranteed to not return void to you. The only word that will accomplish your purposes on this earth and in our lives. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you'll open up your word to us this morning and teach us the things we need to know, the things that will shape us to be more conformed to the image of Christ every day, the things that will teach us to put our trust in our Saviour the rock on whom we stand. So, Lord, would you speak to us this morning in your word, in the name of your precious Son, who we worship, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. If you'd uh, like to open your Bibles to John chapter 6, we're going to be jumping around all over the place today and you won't be able to keep up, but John 6 is where we are beginning. I want to tell you about a treasure that I've found. It's a treasure that's so valuable that I can't measure its worth. It's so valuable that certainly it'll meet my needs far beyond this lifetime. And because you're my friends, I'm going to tell you where to find this treasure as well. There's plenty of it to go around. In fact, there's so much of it, I think, that all of you could take what you need for life and there'd still be plenty left over. One surprise, though, for many people when they first encounter this treasure is that it doesn't look all that valuable. It doesn't look very attractive. In fact, many people turn their back on this treasure because it doesn't look even remotely appealing or precious. But, you know, a jeweller can take a rough, unshaped rock of a diamond and see the sparkling beauty that's hidden within it, even before he cuts it. And when he cuts it and he shapes it, it reveals its beauty. And so it is with this treasure. When this treasure is taken and handled properly, it exposes its beauty, its precious worth. But just it doesn't do it for the casual observer. It doesn't do it for the untrained eye. But don't tell anyone else about this. This can be our secret, all right? Why should we share this treasure with strangers and enemies? Now, last week we looked at the reason why some people believe and some people do not believe in John chapter 6. Even the physical presence of Jesus and his teaching and his miracles that he performed before their very eyes was not enough to convince the Jews that he was there, who he claimed to be their long-awaited saviour. Jesus told them bluntly 
You have seen me and yet you do not believe. And the simple reason why they didn't believe is because they did not want to. Their stubbornness, their refusal to receive Jesus was rooted in their sin and their rebellion and their enmity towards God. The Jews of all people who thought they were in right standing with God. But it was their nature to reject God. And it's ours too. We're born that way. We love to live that way. Many people would object that they hate living that way. They hate being a sinner cut off from God. But actually no one hates it enough to turn from it. Certainly they don't hate it enough to turn from from it without divine help. And that's foundational to understanding everything in the Bible. The Bible reveals to us from the very first pages the corruption, the sinfulness of mankind. Adam, of course, started it all in the Garden of Eden when he disobeyed God and ate the forbidden fruit. And that caused a catastrophic fall. His sin poisoned all of creation. It infected all of his descendants. It's like a bad gene in our DNA, a rebellious and sinful nature that passes down from one generation to the next. And no doctor, no scientist can edit that gene out. Every one of us suffers from from it to this very day. It's what theologians call radical corruption or total depravity. Sin has infected every part of our being. It poisons us physically. That's why we get sick. That's why we break bones. That's why we die. It poisons us emotionally. That's why we think bad thoughts and have bad dreams. It's why we get angry or depressed. It's why friendships sometimes fracture beyond repair. And it poisons us spiritually. It isolates us from God, the one and only source of healing and life. You might argue that you're not totally depraved. You still do good things. You still love your mum, you work hard, you give to worthy causes. But total depravity doesn't say that you are as bad as you could be. For even bad people, evil people, Adolf Hitler, for example, sometimes do good things. Adolf Hitler was good to his mistress and looked after his generals. So how can you say that we are totally depraved? So I said, total depravity doesn't say that we are as bad as we could be, for it could all be worse. It says that we are as bad off as we could be. We couldn't be in a worse situation. There's a big difference between the two. It means exactly what the Bible says about us. We're poisoned to our very core by sin. We are dead, the Bible tells us. We're physically alive, to be sure, but we are spiritually dead. Dead in our trespasses and sins, Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, we, in which we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath. This total depravity corrupts and poisons every fibre of our beings. 
He goes on to say later in Ephesians 4, we were darkened in our understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in us due to the hardness of our hearts. We who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds is how he wrote to the Colossians. The Bible makes it clear that our natural state and natural inclination is to isolate ourselves from God. It's what we prefer. It's what we want to do. And we can't escape this corruption, this deadness by our own efforts. That's foundational to the teaching of the Bible and to the teaching of Jesus Christ himself. If you don't get that, you're not going to make much sense of most of the Bible. And you'll really struggle to appreciate what God has done for you. It's bad news, to be sure. But I've laboured this point of our corruption, our depravity for a reason. We need to get the backdrop right first. We need to understand the bad news if we're ever going to truly appreciate the good news that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need this joyless backdrop to appreciate the value of the treasure that I've found. You know, when the jeweller has finished cutting that stone, that shapeless stone into a beautiful gem for a ring or a bracelet or something, he shows it to the customer by putting it on a black cloth and he shines a bright light on it. Why does he do that? The black cloth focuses the customer's attention on the diamond and provides a stark contrast so that makes the sparkling light of the diamond seem even more brilliant as it reflects off the various facets of that diamond. So my desire today is to show you this treasure I've found, this precious jewel against the black backdrop of our alienation from God and against the harsh reality of our inability to overcome it by our own efforts and strength and devices. Jesus explained to the Jews, who incidentally thought they were immune to this radical corruption, this total depravity, why they would not believe and what the solution was. And so if you open up to John 6.36, he said, I say to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to, on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Skipping down a few to verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. But Jesus came to do his Father's will and to do it perfectly. 
some Christians are inclined to believe that Jesus came to try and calm down his angry and unreasonable father. But that's not the picture the Bible paints of God the Father. Rather, it paints a picture of a father who is looking and longing for his child to come home to him. But it also paints a picture of a father who isn't just waiting passively for his child to come back home. In fact, it paints the opposite picture, a picture of children who stubbornly refuse to come home. That's total depravity. But also a picture of a God who actively does something about it. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. So this return to God begins with the Father choosing Son to give to his Son as a gift. But in a twist that might surprise us, he doesn't give everybody to the Son. He only gives some. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent sent me draws him. Clearly, Jesus is saying through this passage that the Father only gives some to the Son, not all. Otherwise, everybody would be saved. And we know that that's not the case. Rather, what the Bible teaches from start to finish is that God chooses some that he will save, rescuing them from spiritual death and alienation and giving them new life, new hearts that desire him instead of hating him. This decision by God to choose some for salvation, chosen before the foundation of the world, is what we call election. For those who missed it in a previous message, biblical election has nothing to do with voting and everything to do with God's sovereign right to do what he wants and save who he wants. Rather, election in the Bible is the idea of picking out or selecting something or someone from a number of alternatives. So God has chosen out of humanity some to be saved. That's election. In John's Gospel, Jesus says things like, John 6, 17, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to be, betray him. In John 13, Jesus said, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be filled, fulfilled. Who He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. <clears throat> John 15, Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. And then you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. This theme of being chosen, elect by God, runs right through John's gospel. But we can spread the net wider. Nearly all of the New Testament writers agree with John. Matthew said, quoting Jesus, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. In the parable of the wedding feast, Jesus said, For many are called, but few are chosen. At the end of time, Matthew 24, Jesus says he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. 
And speaking of a tribulation to come, Jesus said in Mark, Mark 13, if the Lord had not cut short the days of tribulation, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Luke records in the book of Acts, Acts 13, For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Paul puts it this way. Romans 8.33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Therefore, I endure everything, he says to Timothy, for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Even the Apostle Peter gets in on the act. In 1 Peter 2, he says, you are a chosen people, an elect people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession." that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. And John wraps up the Bible with his statement in Revelation 17. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. And those with him are called and chosen, that is, elect and faithful. The evidence from the New Testament that some are chosen, chosen by God for salvation, seems pretty comprehensive. But this pattern goes back into the Old Testament as well. The clearest early example is Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. You would recall that Abraham was an idolater, not a follower of God. He was an idolater living in Mesopotamia when the Lord chose him out of all the people on the earth. And God promised Abraham descendants who will follow after him and ultimately be the family line that Jesus Christ is born into. Abraham, of course, has two sons, but only one of them, Isaac, the younger, is chosen by God. Abraham's son Isaac gets his wife pregnant with twins. While they're still in the womb, God chooses one of them, Jacob, to be his servant and the instrument of his continuing plan of salvation. The other one, Esau, is not chosen. Not chosen in any saving knowledge of God sort of way, at least. Paul makes that plain in Romans chapter 9, where he says in verse 10, not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That sounds harsh and unfair to our modern sophisticated ears. But it's precisely what the Bible teaches. God chooses some and passes by others and he chooses them not because there is anything deserving in them 
but because he wants to display his love and his mercy to some. Of course, there'll always be objections to that statement. How dare he? That's disgusting. It's unfair. I could never follow a God like that. You might have heard people say that. I've heard people say that. Paul G deals with those objections pretty clearly in Romans chapter 9. Read it for yourself. As one author has said, the words of the Lord Jesus are highly offensive to those who refuse to cling only to Christ. Those who think they can gain God's favour by their works, their own supposed righteousness and ability. It's hard to know how much clearer the Bible could be. Jesus makes it plain. Matthew, Mark and Luke make it plain. Peter makes it plain. Paul makes it plain. The Old Testament makes it plain. God said to Jeremiah, Jeremiah 1 verse 5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. David sang in Psalm 22, You are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. I knew I was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. How could David ever have had the ability to choose God from his mother's womb? Now, I know David is not intending to teach theology here, but it doesn't mean he's wrong in his statement. Especially not when the rest of the Bible teaches us the same thing. Those who God wants to save, he chooses, he elects. Not just before their birth, but before creation, before the foundation of the world. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. God didn't just do this randomly. He didn't blindly pick names out of a hat. He has a plan. He has a purpose in everything he has done and in everything he is doing and in everything he will do. If you're a Christian today, you're a Christian because God chose you before the foundation of the earth, before time and creation and history ever commenced, before you were even a glimmer in your father's or mother's eye. He chose you. The reason we get so up in arms and so angry about this doctrine of election is that we forget our total depravity. We forget the radical corruption that infects us all. And we imagine that there's still something good within us that God must recognise and reward. How else could we complain about not getting what we do deserve, punishment and condemnation, but instead getting what we could never deserve? Salvation, grace, blessing, mercy. Strange creatures we humans. Strange and proud, convinced that we're not so bad that God should punish us for anything. 
You know, if God were to be truly fair, every single person on the planet would be damned to hell and eternal condemnation. Every single one. If God were to be fair, because that's what we deserve. We deserve it for our sin and our rebellion against our creator. The doctrine of election teaches us plainly that the elect are no better than anyone else, no more deserving of God's grace than anyone else. They're not chosen because they deserve something better. So therefore they can never feel superior to anyone else who is not elect. And the non-elect only get what their sin deserves. So they can never complain that they're being treated unfairly. That God should rescue anyone is a mystery. But thank God that he does. You sit here this morning because in that mystery, God has chosen to rescue you. Thank God that he has decided to set his love on at least some people to save them. Because if he didn't, none of us would have any hope. Well, if the doctrine of election is true, what's the point of evangelism? That's one of the objections and questions that's raised almost immediately after the complaint that God's not fair. Well, in fact, if it weren't for God's decision to elect certain people, there would be no point in even attempting evangelism. As we've seen, no one, no matter how persuasive our arguments, will choose to believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. Not even those of us who have now become Christians, we would never have chosen God if it were not for election. And we would work our fingers to the bone trying to convince people of their need for Christ without any hope or prospect of success. Because the human heart is wicked beyond understanding and will never seek Christ of its own accord. But the lecture tells us that there are some who will hear our message, some who will receive, some who will believe in Christ and be saved. It's guaranteed for those whom God chooses will come to Christ. We, of course, don't know who those some are. God hasn't revealed that to us, but he has revealed that when the gospel is preached, when Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection are proclaimed, that God will use that message to bring those people to faith. When the message of Christ was rejected in Corinth, the Lord encouraged Paul to continue to preach there by telling him in Acts 18, don't be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I'm with you. And no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many people in this city. He said that to him before, Anyone was saved in that city. God already had many people in that city waiting to be saved. There were many of Jesus' sheep in that city, but they just hadn't heard the message of Christ. They hadn't yet heard the voice of the Saviour. 
But when they did, when Paul told them about their saviour, the sheep heard the voice of the shepherd and they followed. That's precisely why William Carey went to India in the late 1700s. William Carey is known as the father of the modern missionary movement. He took the message of the gospel to India because he was convinced of the doctrine of election, that God had chosen people in India for salvation and just needed someone to take the message to them. William Carey was told when he applied to the mission board, apparently, that uh, to mind his own business. And they apparently replied to him, when God wants to save the heathen in India, he will do it himself. He doesn't need your help. It's not what the scripture tells us. The scripture tells us that God chooses to use us to take the message of Christ to the elect, wherever they are, that we don't know. God saves no one apart from faith in Christ. So when he wants to bring about the salvation of his elect, he sends someone to tell them the good news of Jesus Christ. But he hasn't told us who he has chosen. So we're commanded to preach the gospel to everyone, everywhere, in every time. We're not to speculate about another person's election, but simply to look for their need for Christ. Do they need Christ? Then they need the gospel. Tell them about Christ and pray that God would save them. Far from being a barrier to evangelism, the doctrine of election is the only thing that can give you motivation to evangelize. It's the only thing that gives us any hope of success in evangelizing, that God has chosen to change hearts of some when they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. J.I. Packer helpfully explains the, own, the fact that only the elect are saved through the preaching of the gospel does not mean that some are shut out of the kingdom who would otherwise be in it. What it means, rather, is that some do enter the kingdom by faith, whereas otherwise none would. We're to invite all to trust in Christ, just as Christ himself did. And there's at least three reasons for that. Firstly, because they need Christ. Secondly, because he will save them if they come to him. And thirdly, because God himself is calling them when you take the message to them. And many people get upset and angry about the thought that God should choose some but not all for salvation. But when you think about it, why should they get upset? If you're not a Christian to start with, why would you care? You don't care enough about God to seek him out in the first place. What difference does it make to you that some are elect and others aren't? That God would choose someone else and not choose you. Why would you care? Conversely, if you're a Christian, rather than argue and get upset, you should rejoice and worship that God would choose you. You who deserve to be condemned forever. You who would never show the slightest interest in him if he hadn't changed your heart and your desires. You who have nothing to offer to the one who created and who owns and who rules all of creation. 
Why should God choose you? Assuming that God is really God, assuming he's the God that is described in the Bible, isn't he entitled to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants it, and with whomever he wants, in whatever way he wants? Surely God is entitled to do that, given that none of us would even exist if he hadn't created us in the beginning. Surely the potter has the right to shape the clay in any way he wants. Let me give you a whole bunch of reasons, nearly two dozen of them, in fact, about why you should rejoice and worship rather than argue. Some of this we've already touched on, and these are just some of the things you have uh, received as a result of God graciously selecting you out of the whole seething mass of humanity. And all of these things are explicitly connected with election in the Bible. Firstly, you're raised to life on the last day. You'll be conformed to the image of Christ. You are justified before God. You will be glorified. In fact, Paul speaks of it as past tense in Romans 8.30. If you're justified in his mind, you're already glorified. Such is the certainty of your salvation. No accusation will ever stand against you. There will be no condemnation. Christ himself is interceding for you. You'll be kept safe in God. You will be prepared for glory, Romans 9.23. You already have by virtue of your election, every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. That's only 10 on the list so far. You will be holy and blameless in his presence. And we'll be coming around the communion table shortly. That's worth remembering as you come. You will be holy and you are holy and blameless in his presence right now by virtue of your election and your choice to follow Christ. You are adopted as sons. You are redeemed through his blood. You are forgiven your sins. You are united to Christ. You are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who will guarantee your inheritance, guarantee your inheritance you have been created for good works you are being sanctified and you will be received into eternal glory that's 20 on that list and that doesn't exhaust everything that god does for his elect does that sound like a list of things that you would complain or argue about i would hope not If God has graciously done all this for you, who deserve the exact opposite, remember, what can you find to complain about? Rather, it should humble us. It should make us fall to our knees, overwhelmed like Isaiah did in uh, chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. And what was Isaiah's response? 
he was broken. Woe to me. I'm a man of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the Lord. That should be the effect of the election, the doctrine of election has on us. The knowledge that God has chosen you in spite of your rebellion against him. To bless you like this. It should make our jaws drop in amazement and in wonder. It should cause us to open our mouths in praise of this great and gracious and merciful God. Packer again tells us the Apostle Paul following Jesus' lead neither makes an issue of election nor gets embarrassed about it. He is neither perplexed by it nor ashamed of it. He simply accepts it and expounds it as a central part of the gospel. And when he introduces it into his teaching, it is for one end only, to help Christians see how great is the grace that has saved them and to move them to a worthy response in worship and life. In Jesus' hands and in Paul's hands and Paul's thinking, the doctrine of election is a springboard to worship and assurance and holy living. It's meant to make us humble, confident, joyful, active, not argumentative. God forbid that it should make us, as it seems to for some, proud and complacent or lazy. Sadly, this doctrine can too often be a stumbling block even for believers if it's handled incorrectly. Packer again says the doctrine of election, dealing as it does with the inmost secrets of God's will, is strong meat, very nourishing to those who can take it, but acutely indigestible to those whose spiritual system is out of order. The truth is that Jesus didn't come just to make salvation possible. He came to make salvation certain. He came to save. And before you argue that election removes human responsibility, that's decidedly not what the Bible teaches. The Bible reveals both that God chooses some for salvation in his sovereign will and that every person is responsible to come to him for salvation. How the two work together is difficult, maybe impossible, for us to understand, but it's true nonetheless. God is sovereign and we are responsible. And God is not unjust. God is not unfair. He does not punish anyone unjustly. For we all deserve his wrath. He owes sinners no mercy of any kind, only condemnation. So it's no injustice if God chooses not to bless someone. So we might ask, why choose me, God? And the Bible answers, because in his mercy, he was pleased to. And that's the end of the matter. There is no other reason. God was pleased to set his love on you, to choose you not for anything within yourself, but because he's a gracious and merciful God. 
At this point, we should stop asking questions and start to worship and give thanks. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, Consider your calling, your election, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Not many had qualities about them that God should look at them and say, I think that deserves reward. But God chose what is chose what is foolish in the world to shame what is wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in his presence. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. I was just kidding when I told you to keep this a secret. Of course you shouldn't keep it a secret. You can't keep it a secret. This treasure is too precious. You mustn't keep it a secret. There's enough of this treasure available even for your enemies. And I promise you, if your enemies get hold of this treasure, they'll become your friends. They'll become your brothers and sisters. But how will they ever find this treasure unless you tell them about Christ? You should share Christ with them. Share Christ with them at every available opportunity. Share with them the good news of salvation found in Jesus Christ and in him alone. And if you're already a Christian, be humbled, be amazed, be in awe, rejoice, worship. For if God has chosen you, out of the 7 billion people on this planet for salvation. He will not let you go. You are safe eternally in his care and he will make it his business to ensure you remain safe in his care. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Election. Is the reason why God has chosen whom he wants to save before the foundation of the world. It's humbling, but it's awe-inspiring. Let's pray, Heavenly Father. We get hung up about this so often as Christians. We argue about it, we divide over it, churches have split over it. And yet it should make us, it should break us, Lord. It should make us humble before you, wondering what it is, Lord, that would ever cause you to extend your grace and your mercy to us. And we know, Lord, it is only because you are good, gracious, merciful, 
loving and far from giving us what, what we deserve, Lord, you choose to give us what we don't deserve. Life eternal, forgiveness, salvation, adoption, redemption, healing, peace. Lord, we, we humble our hearts before you, Lord. Lord, we repent of those times we've argued about this, disputed it. Times we've felt proud because we're Christians and the other person isn't. Times we've been smug, thinking we know it all, and yet, Lord, there's so many mysteries in you that we cannot fathom. We see through a glass darkly at the moment, as Paul says. One day, Lord, we will see Face to face, we will see Jesus Christ in all his incarnate glory. But at times, not yet, Lord. So we stand before you, Lord, humbled by your grace, by your mercy, by that unfathomable, unfathomable decision you made to choose us to bless And, Lord, we declare our undying love for you, for you, Jesus Christ, who came and poured out his blood on the cross so that we might be reconciled to the Father. Lord, your plan is beyond our understanding, but we are so thankful for it. Lord, we pray for our friends, our family, our workmates who haven't yet heard this gospel or who haven't yet responded. Lord, we pray that they are part of your chosen, but Lord, we pray that you'll give us opportunities to tell them of Jesus Christ, to tell them the good news, salvation offered to everyone who believes without distinction, without concern for race or creed or sex or orientation or anything else, Lord, you offer it to whoever would believe. Help us, Lord, to take this message to those who need it. Stir in our hearts, Lord, where necessary a hunger to take the message overseas to foreign lands, to communities where the gospel is unheard or outlawed. Lord, we pray, Lord, that you've not only chosen us for salvation, that you would choose some of us for that task. To take the gospel where Christ is not known. That your sheep, Jesus, may hear your voice and follow after you from all the four corners of the earth. We pray this, Lord. In your great and mighty and precious and perfect name, Jesus. Amen. I'd like to invite John up now to lead us in communion. Good morning. Thanks for that. Um, We're in week three of our 
flyover, real brief flyover of the four distinct views of the Lord's Supper. I'm hoping that uh, over the last few weeks you've been thinking about what we're actually doing when we have the bread and the wine. Uh, thinking about, thank you, thinking about how Christ may be present in the in the Lord's Supper. Um, so this is the second last week. Last week was pretty technical. You probably agree it was fairly technical. This week will be the opposite. It won't be technical at all. Um, but before we get there, we'll just do a quick recap of last week. We saw Martin Luther's view of consubstantiation, that Christ is truly physically present in the Lord's Supper, in, with, and under the bread and wine. Now, the first week we looked at Rome's view of transubstantiation. So this means that both Luther, the Lutherans, and Rome would both affirm that Christ is truly physically received by partakers of the Lord's Supper when eating the bread and drinking the wine. Now, one of the one of the strengths of Luther, Luther's theology in this regard particularly was that it made a bit more sense of Paul's warnings regarding the bread and the, the, uh, the bread and the wine in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where he says in verse 20, uh, 27 therefore whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy way shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord but a person must examine himself and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup for the one who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not properly recognize the body. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number are asleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So in Luther's view, if Christ is in, with, and under the elements... It's a blessing to receive communion if you're receiving it in faith. Because after all, you're receiving Christ as Savior and Redeemer. But if communion is taken without faith, Christ is still received, but is received as holy judge, not as Redeemer and Savior. Now, as a side note, this is probably one reason why you would often hear um, Ian speak about it's a term called fencing the table, and often Ian will, will put a bit of a warning, a barrier to entry before having the, the bread and the wine, basically saying if you're not a believer, it's not for you. If you're in unrepentant sin, get that sorted out before you take it. Um, or if you're under church discipline, it's not for you either. Now, this might seem harsh. It might seem a bit mean denying people the bread and the wine. But it's done for two really serious reasons. Number one, the warning passages regarding the Lord's Supper, they're just as true as the rest of Scripture. So if it is a pretty serious thing we're doing, you want to be making sure you're in right standing with Christ before doing it. Number two, what does communion say? Well, Communion says to its communicants that you are a beneficiary of the person and work of Christ. If you're not a believer, that's a false affirmation of salvation. It shouldn't be for you if you don't accept Christ as Savior. So we now move to, to Zwingli, Ulrich Zwingli's memorial view, and we've seen transubstantiation, the changing of the substance. We've seen consubstantiation 
the substance with the bread and the wine. Um, I've jokingly heard of Zwingli's view, the memorial view called non-substantiation. There is no substance of Christ in the bread and the wine. Um, if Martin Luther focused heavily on the words, this is my body and this is my blood, uh, we would say Hudrick Zwingli focused too heavily, maybe not too heavily, but heavily on the words, do this in remembrance of me. First uh, Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 says, for I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So for Zwingli, the Lord's Supper was a memorial that we hold uh, in remembrance of the sacrifice of Christ at Calvary. It's considered a public testimony of previous grace, and it was a sign of something that had already happened. In a similar way that Remembrance Day is a memorial to fallen soldiers since World War One. So the value of the Lord's Supper, according to Zwingli, was not in receiving Christ, as Roman and Luther would say, but in its proclamation of the gospel and the faith that this gospel establishes and builds in the life of believers. So it's fairly simple, a whole lot more simple than the first two we've seen. And there's some benefits to that. It would make sense if the Lord's Supper was purely a memorial. Uh, there was no real, and there was no real presence of Christ in the bread and the wine. There would be a whole lot less pomp and ceremony, a whole lot less superstition and abuses. Now, this perspective, uh, at least in the time of Zwingli, led to a much simpler communion. Uh, but, and and maybe surprisingly to some, still uh, a high level of reverence. Um, it can't be said. That's probably still the point. Um, after Zwingli, particularly the centuries following and, and including our own. That's um, my personal view. It'd be difficult to prove, but I'd say this perspective probably um, behind consciously or, or unconsciously uh, behind the sentiment the modern church seems to have quite frequently that the Lord's Supper is just as true, just as real when having Doritos and Coke after a rock climbing event. Um, it does make some sense. If Christ isn't truly in the bread and wine, and it's simply a memorial, just a bringing to remembrance of a historical sacrifice, then what's so special about bread and wine themselves? Also, what's so concerning about partaking unworthily if there's no true Christ presence in the bread and the wine? Now, next week, we're going to conclude this flyover with uh, the fourth and final view, which is Calvin's understanding. But before we do, have a think. This is this is basically the conclusion, but have a think about what you think's going on in the bread and the wine. We've seen transubstantiation, consubstantiation. We've seen the moral view. Do you think there's more to this than purely a bringing to remembrance? Uh, or is it solely a memorial? Uh, but today, let's at least acknowledge the bread and the wine is at least a memorial. And because of that, let's take the bread and the wine in faith that the work Jesus accomplished on our behalf in both his perfectly righteous life and his substitutionary death is efficacious for those whom the Father draws to his Son by the preaching of the gospel and the working of the Holy Spirit. Dean, would you like to pray over the bread and the wine before we take it?
Thanks, John. Would you appeal uh, the wrapper from your communion, please? And we'll pray first. Father, we thank you that this represents, at the very least, it represents for us what Christ has done on the cross. Sent by you, Father, to carry our sin, to bear the burden of our sin, to carry our guilt, the punishment due to us, and to take that away, to wash it away, Lord, by his blood washed away. Lord, so at the very least, we remember today what Christ has done for us at your instigation, Father, willingly done for us. We thank you for that. We thank you that, Lord, we can come before your throne, into your presence with boldness, knowing that our sins have been washed away by the blood of Christ. Our hearts have been cleansed by the work of the Holy Spirit. He's put a new heart and a new spirit in those who put their trust in Christ. So this morning we remember those things as we take the bread and drink the juice and we give you thanks, Lord, for your mercy poured out for us. Thank you, Lord, would you take the bread and the juice Lord, we are by nature wholly unworthy to receive this communion that we've just shared in. But we're made worthy by your blood, Jesus. And we thank you for that. Lord, would you stir our hearts afresh every day to worship and serve you and remember the great price you paid for our salvation. Thank you, Lord, in the name of our precious Saviour, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.